We're back, everybody. How's everybody doing? Thank you for the patience in a quick break um, again for us. You know, life gets busy sometimes, and that's okay. Uh, episode 19, we are pumped to have Chad Lencher with us, um, another person from Chris's network, um, somebody who has uh, had a long journey of addiction and recovery um, and is a big influence in the recovery community um, today. Uh, Chad was with um, Origins Recovery Center. Uh, that's where he met Chris. They go into that story uh, in some pretty funny moments and has since uh, moved along to uh, Birmingham, Alabama, where he is the executive director of Impact Recovery Center, which we will link on our website uh, as well as in the details of this podcast. So you can take a look at Chad's story, their team, and all of the great things the Impact team is doing. Uh, this episode is a great one. I really enjoyed this conversation. We are um, mainly talking about uh, the concept of time, the stigma of time um, as it relates to recovery, and the fact that you know any great thing takes dedication, time, and willingness. And so for those of you out there, uh, whether you are uh, addicted or whether you are a loved one, uh, I think, you know, from my perspective as a loved one, I, I could see that uh, there is a lot of anxiety in the fact that, uh, you, you know, you tell somebody that is struggling that, hey, maybe you should stop your life for a little bit and, and go get treatment. Well, there's way more to it than that. And, um, and Chad does a really great job of outlining the fact that, you know, it doesn't have to be this cumbersome thing. Um, how much time, he mentions at one point, have you dedicated to the downfall, right? And and really in the grand scheme, what is a month, two months, six months, even a year um, to dedicate to yourself to get better? Um, really, if you think about it that way, and if you kind of listen to some of the guidance he gives on this and the concept of, of time and recovery, um, it's it's really a great um, kind of bring back down to life moment that at least I had and I hope you do too. We get into, again, his story and meeting Chris, which is hilarious. Uh, there's a lot of information in here, I think, for both. Um, those of you who are struggling, but also those who are loved ones. Um, this is just a really solid episode uh, for us to get into. So, and the other thing I'll call out in this episode is that we get into discussion of the 12 steps again. I think um, I mentioned in the episode that I've, um, I follow a lot on social media. I try to pay attention out there and, and to the conversations that are being had about addiction and recovery in general, because we're all really trying to learn this together. And what I'll say is, um, we've had a little bit of, um, you know, discussion and some folks that have commented that um, we are only in favor of the 12 steps uh, on this podcast. And I will say that that's not true. Um, we're very open to um, anybody's journey to recovery. And I think our, our main goal is making sure that we can help people get to recovery um, and to get to uh, a state of being well and being their best selves. And um, it does happen differently sometimes, as Chad mentions in the episode, um, than, than the traditional you know ways that we preach through the 12 steps. Uh, the 12 steps just happens to be the, the successful tool that has worked for a lot of the guests on this podcast. But I would love to set the record straight that uh, we are by no means only promoting that. Um, we are promoting wellness and mindfulness and recovery from addiction, alcoholism, substance abuse, um, however you want to call it. Uh, so so please know that we're in favor of all people, all things, all great uh, recovery methods. And, um, and you'll hear a lot more of that discussion in here. Uh, recovery takes time. Remember that as you listen to episode 19. Uh, Chad, thank you so much for joining us. We hope to have you back soon. And as always, we will chat next time. All right, so uh, back from a bit of a break. Welcome everybody to the latest episode. Um, we are so excited to be um, back with Chris this time around. Chris, welcome back to the podcast. So good to be back. Um, and then Chad, and and we'll get uh, Chad into your story. But thank you so much um, for joining us as well. Um, we're thrilled to have you on the Faded Podcast. Thank you for having me. And I, I didn't feel like that intro was cheesy at all. Well, I really. That's pretty fantastic. 
<laughs> like maybe this is uh 19 episodes and I'm used to it now but it it is it's generally very awkward so <laughs> well, anyways very um, perfect well listen um let's get into your story I um I don't know much about you you and I have not met in person can't wait to at some point but um give us a little background about who you are um and your relationship with Chris um how you guys got to be in each other's lives and just kind of um, any any background you'd like to give the audience, um, as we say to everyone, we've got a, a good mixed bag of listeners um, that are eager and excited to learn more about um, substance use disorder and everything that goes along with it. So anything you can give us about who Chad is would be awesome. All right, I'll, I'll give you the uh, <laughs> the streamlined version. And if we have time, I'll even tell you about my first encounter with Chris. He loves this story. Oh, boy. I was I was going to cut Jackie off and start telling That's stories happening. about how exciting I was. That is. <laughs> <laughs> That's happening. Um, so I was, uh, I was a good student in high school. You know, I think I had high hopes for my future. I think my parents had high hopes for my future. And uh, I moved out of mom and dad's house and left and just kind of fell off a cliff was awaiting the day that life was just going to turn around and it never did. And I, I finally woke up at 31 years old and realized this is never going to get any better. Um, 10 years of pretty heavy drinking and cocaine abuse. And I was ready to be done and the timing was right. I'd been talking to my sister for years about going to treatment if I couldn't get it together, but treatment's such a funny thing it's it's not only difficult for the addict or alcoholic to go but at least in my family's case it was almost like it was a a permanent mark on the lyncher name hmm. like that let, let's let's do that as a last resort rather than you know option a and so i finally went to treatment at 31 years old had a really profound experience in treatment and I, I bought into the whole spiritual program of action. However, like most things, I, I was going to do it my way. And yeah. I didn't I didn't do the things that I felt um, were either that seemed unnecessary to me or were just simply too uncomfortable for me to do. So I did what a lot of people do. I kicked and I chose what what I thought was important. And, uh, Does I that mean so going through a couple steps and then not? Um, and then um, walking, I did, or I did more than that. Um, and, and I'll tell you what that means. It's one of my favorite stories to tell. It's when I met my sponsor Jaime. I'd been sober for three and a half years, and I relapsed and was baffled by the fact that I relapsed. I think the people in my my group were baffled because I went to a lot of meetings and I sponsored a lot of people. And when I relapsed, I hooked up with my current sponsor. This was twelve years ago now. And uh, he asked me a simple question. He asked me if I'd ever worked the 12 steps. And I was offended that he asked me that question because he knew I'd been in recovery for a number of years. <laughs> and uh, he just asked me some follow-up questions. He said, when was the last time you wrote inventory? And I said, well, I wrote inventory and treatment. He said, you haven't written inventory in three and a half years? Mm -hmm. I said, no. He said, all right, did you make all your amends? And I said, well, I'm, I made some of them. And this is real common that people will make enough amends until the point that they feel better. Yeah. And then we're missing the whole point of the exercise. Then it's not about me feeling better. And so I made a handful of amends. Um, I felt about prayer and meditation. Like I did church as a child. It just seemed, you know, like just, is this really making a difference in my life? Is this really having any impact? So I, I didn't do any, meditation um he asked me if i wrote an evening review every night i said no but i i didn't even know what that was and he mm -hmm. said and you think you've worked the 12 steps and so i did again what a lot of people do is they believe the 12 steps don't work because they've never truly worked the 12 steps and uh we had a conversation he said man if i'm going to take you through this work you're going to do every last bit of it and I'm going to hold you accountable to it and and we did that my life changed drastically and I have not turned back since for the last 12 years um 
I ended up moving down to South Texas sometime in my second year and spent the last little over a decade there. And I just moved to Birmingham, Alabama. And that gets us up to speed. Do you want to hear about my first encounter with Chris? I absolutely do. Of course. <laughs> Thank you for so, sharing that. Uh, you can divulge whatever you want about where you were and what you were doing in South Texas. But I moved to, just to segue into it, I moved to Kerrville, Texas in 2011 and got sober in, in March of 2011. And after I had about 11 months sober, I I uh, I don't remember if I contacted you, Chad, or if, I think Hunter uh, B was the one that mentioned me going out and working there at the treatment facility in South Padre. And um, so I decided to move out there, move, <laughs> moved all my things, which was like a half of a suitcase worth of clothes because I still didn't have many possessions. And then the rest was what Chad's about to say. So yeah, Kerrville's kind of a farm team for this facility origins that I was at. and whenever we're going to get a Kerrville guy, there's usually some talk like, Hey, this guy's coming out. He's going to be really strong. So there's, there's never any concern when we get these guys from Kerrville. And um, I met Chris and I said, man, we, we got to go to the admin building or I came over to the admin building to meet him. I think we went over there. I said, you know, it's standard. Do you have to take a UA? And Chris goes in the bathroom and never comes out. I'm like, what, what is he doing in there? <laughs> And so our HR person is like, hey, this, this kid's been in the bathroom forever. And I'm like, so I go knock on the door and he opens the door and he's sweating bullets. He's got paper towels in both hands. He's filled the trash can with paper towels. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, Chad, I swear I can pass this UA. I don't know why I'm so nervous. I can't go to the bathroom. <laughs> I chugged like. 12 cups of water in there and legitimately like was just like I can't pee I don't know what's wrong with me but I can't pee and this huge opportunity the only wait, wait, opportunity wait, wait, wait. in my life this was <laughs> legit just nerves Chris I don't know what it was I was just like either it was nerves or just like I don't know it was weird but when I finally this, went I was like thank god this is he ended up being a fantastic employee but in that moment, I was like, who is this knucklehead? Let me tell you, this is hilarious for me as Chris's older sister and seeing him through life because the kid is always on and charismatic and knows what to say and like lights up a room. And that actually is great for me to hear that you had one moment of not that. <laughs> he, he was not that guy that in that is moment hilarious so you I think it was the first that. time I was around like adults that were like that had their like shit together excuse my language and I Chad was my first like real boss I worked at a skate shop for five years in Raleigh and had like jobs that I held for a while but you know I worked at Schlotsky's before I moved from Kerrville there and I think I was just like wow I actually have like a real job for once this is kind of intense Oh my God. That's hilarious. I, I really appreciate hearing that story because that I have never heard that before. Chris, you've never talked about that. Um, and I let, well, what were you 21 or 22 though? I was 22 at that point. Yeah. And just trying no, to, I think I was still 21 at that point. I had about a month that was a month before I turned 22. Oh my God. And just try to figure out life after a long journey so far, right? <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that's really great. And, and Chad, expand a little more about, uh, on about um, what, what got you into the work you do today and kind of like what was Origins for you and how did you get into that after you kind of figured your own story out? Like what, what led you to continue forward? So... You know, I had some moderate success before treatment. I was in the mortgage business for a number of years and the, the market was good, you know, for a guy that doesn't sleep much <laughs> and uh, spends this, a lot of time in paranoid delusion. I, I did okay for the year prior to treatment. And so I came out of treatment with this attitude that, you know, I, I really can't work for less than six figures. And I kept trying to, to do these jobs that I could make large commissions. Mm. And it was very strange. When I got sober and I no longer had the tools of 
manipulation and dishonesty at my disposal, I just was not effective mm. at all. I kept getting fired from jobs and I, I just couldn't, I couldn't understand it. I wasn't having any success in any of these jobs I was taking. And uh, I went back to the mortgage business. I tried to sell oil and gas for a little bit. I made it with <laughs> the on, on the phone. Um, I just can't I did, see that, Chad. I did foundation, sold foundation repair, and we had to climb under some of these pier and beam houses, and I realized I was claustrophobic, but I just oh. still too driven by fear in my life mm-hmm. to have the ability to convince somebody to trust me or buy from me. And I think in addiction, you're just in survival mode. You just kind of do what you have to do. But once you start living this life of honesty, um, I, I just found it real difficult. And so I took a ton of jobs early in recovery. And uh, this is another one of my favorite stories to tell. It, it's kind of long and drawn out. Is that okay? We have time. Let's do it. Okay. So I get a call. Um, one of my closest friends was one of the first patients down at Origins. And uh, he was meeting with his counselor and she said, uh, what are you going to do when you leave here? And he said, I I think I'm just going to call a buddy and see if I can sleep on his couch for a little bit. And in treatment, that's the worst aftercare plan, you know, one could possibly think of. And she said, I I don't really like that idea, but but who's your friend? And uh, he said, this guy named Chad. And she said, Lyncher? And he said, yeah, you know, she was my counselor in treatment. Hmm. So she called me up and we made arrangements for him to come up. And it, she asked me on that phone call, why don't you come down here and work? And uh, it actually worked out beautifully because he came up and t- took over my lease, which he only paid rent for like a month in my bills. And I had to drive up there and take care of all that. That's another story in itself. But it allowed me to come down to Texas. But the cool part of this is uh you know I'm now actively I I have this discipline around prayer and meditation and uh when this offer was made to me on paper it didn't make any sense I was going to make you know a quarter of what I was making in the mortgage industry I was going to have to leave all my family and friends that I you know know and love in Dallas the recovery community that I had grown up in um, it was the first time since I'd been sober that I lived in my own apartment. Um, I'd lived with my parents, then lived with a buddy and then lived with a, a girlfriend. So it was the first time I had my own place. I was going to have to give that up and, and share a, a bedroom with another grown man at what, 36 years old, mm. live with five other guys in a staff house. It just, again, based on the material world standards, it wasn't all that appealing, but something was drawing me to it. And I'm going to back up as I'm taking all these jobs early in recovery. I finally got to a place where I just started consistently asking God to give me an opportunity to do something that I really enjoy doing. Something where I wake up on Monday morning, don't think, oh man, this again, but also something where I could, could learn a career and you know, maybe start at the bottom and actually develop, you know, have some career development. But I never tied the two together when this offer was made to me. And uh, so it took me some time to make a decision. And um, I made a pros and cons list. I shared it with some people. I was seeking guidance from some people. I was calling down South Texas to ask questions. And after a week or two of this, I'm, I'm constantly asking God to give me a clear answer, and I'm just not getting anything, and I, I don't know if it's scary. I don't know if I should do this, and I'm driving to my parents' house one day, and all of this is a result of prayer and meditation. It's the first profound experience that I had and started to buy into this, but I'm driving to my parents' house one day. I can remember right where I was on Campbell Road in Dallas, Texas. And uh, I'm just caught up in my own selfish thoughts, listening to the radio and thinking 
you know, wonder if mom and dad will have food when I get there. And then, and this is how God speaks to me. It's been my experience with these things, with decisions like this, when God talks to me, it, it wasn't an audible external voice that I heard, but it was a very clear interruption of my thoughts. And it was a voice in my head that was not the voice that I used to talk to myself. Hmm. And the voice, exactly said, right. the voice said, Chad, this is the answer to your prayer. Stop bugging me about this. Wow. And I, I know that sounds like, well, God wouldn't talk like that. Well, I think God <laughs> talks to us however he needs to talk to us in order for us to hear him. And it, I made the decision to move to South Texas in that moment. And I was able to move down there without any regret or and I think it's why I stayed so long because I never questioned if I should be there or not. Right. And people ask me all the time, how long are you going to stay down there? Cause I, I was down there a long time. And, uh, my answer was always until God tells me to leave. And a couple months ago, God told me it was time to go. Yeah. Well, it was, it was cool. We were on the golf course right before you left, uh, for your new adventure. And I remember you saying, uh, Chris, I just, I couldn't be more clear that I've made the right decision because everything is too easy and things have lined up to where I'm not really putting that much effort into it. And that's been my experience as well. When I'm, when I'm living in honesty and I'm living in, in prayer meditation and I'm, I'm actually being honest because I have been dishonest in recovery. And when that happens and I'm not following the disciplines, life tends to get a little more confusing and I feel like I'm swimming upstream or against, against stream and, and it's hard, you know, and it's amazing how if you're living in the, in the right principles and you're actually doing the quote unquote right thing by following the appropriate steps and, and living in prayer and meditation, it's, it's amazing how things just kind of fall in your lap. And, and when you, when you have to make big decisions, they're kind of made for you in a way, you know? Yeah. Could not agree more. And so, Chad, give us a quick, just for those listening, what was your role um, in South Texas at Origins? And then what, what is your, what's your day-to-day today? Or what's, what's the role today that you're playing? So I went down to South Texas and took the same role that Chris took when he came down there. Okay. And I did that for a number of years. I was a recovery advocate, worked closely with the patients. And after some time, I was promoted to be the recovery advocate supervisor. And we had origins, had at the time two other facilities in Florida. We no longer have the one that they asked me to go oversee. And so I moved to Florida for six months. And uh, then they asked me to come back to Texas. And for the the last five years down in South Texas, um, I did alumni in the continuing care you know, kept in contact with our alumni, taught a lot of 12-step classes, and then put together those continuing care plans, therapists, psychiatrists, sober living, whatever a a patient would be doing after treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, And with this new role in Alabama, we're a small 14-bed facility. Uh, We have just been open a few months, and my official title is executive director, but you know, I, more of a program director. Mm-hmm. So I made a conscious decision early on when I got into this industry that no matter what I do, I will always stay close to the patients or clients. Mm-hmm. I will always know all of them by name and know their stories and spend time with them individually. I will always teach group. And I think that's what helps me be effective in what I do. Um, you know, they had a real nice program set up when I, when I got here. Um, but I've changed a little bit of the daily schedule. We're looking to expand pretty quickly. Um, but I, I, I want to say always, I'm trying to think if I, there's been a day that I haven't taught a group, but I do a lot of the operational stuff as well as, as teach. That's great. And, and, how has it been so far in a different state and, you know, moving, moving to definitely, definitely Alabama is different than Texas. I, I would say you're still in the South, but um, how's it been so far? 
Well, like Chris said, it's it's been easy. The most difficult part is I, I have a home in Texas that's on the market. So it, it's difficult to go from a house to an apartment. I have a dog and we're on the third floor. That part has been a, a little stressful for me, but I'm getting used to it. The rest of it's been seamless. Yeah, Absolutely love the men that I work with. Our facility has only employed men in recovery. So it's yeah. all men, 14 male beds, and then a handful of us that work there that are all in recovery. I love the city of Birmingham. Mm -hmm. um, it's been a really cool experience so far. That's awesome. Yeah, Birmingham's a great place. Um, I've been it, through there a couple times in my career as well. Um, and yeah, for sure. So I would love to know from both of you actually, um, so you've both worked kind of within the same neighborhood, I will, if, if you will, for lack of a better term of recovery and same principles, same venues, um, et cetera. You've, I know for a fact, um, through Chris's stories have, have seen people in all walks of life, right? You've seen people that have nothing. You've seen people with likely notable names come through. I mean, I think from each of you, if you don't mind, what, what are, what's a story or a moment that stands out to you um, that's stuck with you um, in your time? I would say not necessarily in your own recovery, but in working with people in, in um, the treatment facilities that, um, that has stuck with you. I have two that I have one. Okay. It's one story, but it's, it's the same story twice. And this is the cool stuff about treatment that a lot of people will say like, Oh, well, if you're not ready, you're not ready. And I used to be one of those people. And, and what I've noticed is that two of the most profound experiences that I've had were actually down in South Texas at that, uh, working at that facility. And it was weird. Uh, one of the guy's name was Tanner. I'm not going to divulge the whole name because of the compliance. My story is about a guy named Tanner. Probably <gasps> the same I Tanner. Think, I, I hope it is. And I, I can't wait to talk to him after this because it reminded me of it and made me happy. So first one was in 2012 and there was a guy named Tanner who did not want to be there. His family made him go. He didn't want to be there. I think he was a big meth guy and just couldn't find a way to bring himself to a place of willingness to, to do things and was kind of not, not a terrible um, client, but just, couldn't really get through to him. And, and there was one night where he was sitting on the couch and it may, it makes it honestly makes me want to cry right now. Um, he was sitting on the couch and, and I used to really like getting close with, with the guys like on a, on a very, very deep level. And I just sat down next to him and he had this blank stare and he was staring ahead. I think he had been there for 45 days or 50 days. And uh. I just looked at him and I said, Tanner, what's up, man? And he just, he just shook his head. And I just, I just said, man, you don't, you don't have to fight anymore. You don't, you don't have to fight anymore and you don't have to be scared anymore. And, and he, he just, he lost it and he started crying. I mean, he started, he started bawling his eyes out and I just, I just looked at him and I gave him a hug and I said, man, I, I have been where you're at before. And I want you to know that I'm free today. And you can be too, but you won't be able to do that unless you have willingness to, to follow through with something and, and take some action. And man, he, he, I, I don't know. I haven't kept up with him since I kept up with him for like five years after that or six years after that. And he's, he was still sober for like six years. So he might still be sober. The other Tanner, I was actually in town visiting a couple years ago. And uh, I think I was living in Austin at that point. And I was at a meeting um, outside of the facility, just a normal meeting. And, and the clients actually were brought to that meeting. And there was this one kid who I remember I saw, he shared in a, in a meeting and he said something to, to you know, um, shed some light on how he was struggling and he couldn't really figure out why all these people were, were doing what they were doing in treatment. And it was kind of a hoax, but he doesn't want to feel bad anymore. And I went and I spoke at the facility. Uh, I used to come speak at the facility when, when I would come in town and, and um, I spoke one night and I stayed there and I remember him looking at me the whole time and he never broke eye contact as I was speaking. And after I was done talking, he came up to me and he just said, you just told my entire story. And I said, I know I did. 
And he said, and I'm also from Burlington, North Carolina, which is 40 minutes away from where wow. you're from. And I said, and I said, what's your name? And, and he said, I'm Tanner. And I started crying, man. I, 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 um, I looked at him and I said, you didn't want to be here until right now. And he said, no, I didn't. I'm, I'm the class clown. I cause problems in group. I, I try to psychologically break down my counselors and I don't want to do that anymore. And I looked at him and I said, well, there was another kid named Tanner about seven years ago or eight years ago. And he was the exact same person as you. And I think he's still sober today and you can do this too. And I believe he's doing great now. And, um, you can't, you just, when these things happen, it's, it's, it's absolutely impossible to, to, to deny the power of God. Right. It is whatever you believe God is it in my experience, what Chad was saying about how life can be so easy if you do the right things and stuff like I, I, no matter what happens to me in life, if I go down a dark path, I will still know that there's absolutely no possible way I could ever deny the power of God because of my experiences. So that's that. two stories, but I have a lot more. Two tanners. I love it. And Chad, you have a tanner as well. Well, when you asked that question, I thought, I mean, I've, I've worked with I don't know, thousands of people that thousands. have come through there, but Tanner was the first one that came to mind. And coincidentally, you know, Chris ended up sponsoring him and it's the story he told of the second Tanner, but I'll just, uh, I'll give a little more insight into that kind of part two of what Chris told. So I, I too stayed real close with him and he was a pain in treatment. He, mm. he was a problem. And uh, he left and went to a sober living went, and was a pain there and they kicked him out and uh, came down to the island for the reunion and kind of behaved like a jackass there as well. And uh, he can continue to come back and, and talk to the guy. So he's doing this thing and working with Chris, but he still just kind of refused to grow up. And uh, the last time he came down, we went to eat breakfast together and he was just a completely different guy. He was polite, well-spoken, very calm. And I was just staring at him and I'm like, dude, something has happened to you. Like yeah. you are just a completely different guy. And he said, yeah, I, I know. I guess I, I finally grew up in this thing, hmm. but I like to tell that story and I'll try not to get on the soapbox here, but it's just kind of what I've seen over the last 10 years is the recovery process takes some time. And our text tells us that we need to have this psychic change, a complete change in who we are, the way I talk, the way I think, the way I perceive the world. And that takes some time. And what I've watched happen for the last 10 years is, is people just won't hang in there long enough for that to occur. Hmm. You know, they'll, they'll do a little bit of this. They may go to treatment. They might even go to sober living. They might even find a sponsor and do some step work. But they won't do this thing as it's outlined long enough to have that psychic change that's going to change their life forever. And get them so deeply connected to power that they won't ever drink or use again. Why do you Would think you that agree is? With that, Why do you Chris? think that is? Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more with that. And some, some, I think, I think that if you go through all 12 steps and you actually make amends and you actually have a first step experience where you've been beaten up bad enough and you get on, you know, the same page as, as the process. And then, and then once you're through that process and you actually help another human being and, and, and help another uh, struggling addict or alcoholic, something happens within you naturally. And I think that automatically you're going to have, you're going to have a spiritual experience doing that, which is what Chad is calling a psychic change. No, I'm um, actually calling that something different. And I've come to this realization. Do you mind if I interrupt you real quick, Chris? Not at all. Not at all. So what I watched and Chris, I watched this happen with you. Like you had the spiritual experience that put you in this position of neutrality where you could stay sober. But had you not continued to do the work, 
you would have never grown up and become the man. I wouldn't have grown up. I exactly. think the, the recovery process is really more like a year of consistently doing this and working with other guys before that that profound psychic change actually takes place. Where I wake up and people, it's noticeable to others, like this is a completely different guy. Does that make sense? I, I could definitely agree with that. I, th I think what, what I was saying was, my experience was I had a change and once I continued to grow in understanding and effectiveness, like the, the book says, that's when things started to change long-term. And I had like those experiences where I was like, wow, I'm a man now, you know, like that, I actually follow through. That's what people won't do is right. that in right. part. Yeah. And that's, that's honestly what you're saying is, is that's what takes the most time and what people may not be patient enough to see. But on that note, I mean, I have so many questions listening to this because why, why do people not do it? Is it just, and, and is there a gray area of they have to, I mean, kind of like seeking help or treatment, right? Like that they have to do it on their own. Like, like what does that come down to the fact that they don't do it? I think there's a number of things. Um, people won't stay in the same recovery community long enough. So we'll watch people in a really strong recovery community, leave and go to a recovery community that might be a little watered down. And then they start buying into that hmm. way of life. Mm -hmm. People won't stay in the continuum of care long enough. Like some people just, they're going to need that accountability for a longer stretch of time. You know, they may need to be in treatment a little longer. They may need to stay in sober living a little bit longer. But like guys that we see that are successful, um, typically are guys like Chris that go to treatment and stay in a recovery community. Yeah. Like where they can actually get through the work and start sponsoring other guys. Right. And then make mistakes and have, have a group around you to learn how to work, work through mistakes with honesty and integrity and, and get through things that pop up in life that, I may not have, or people may not have known how to get through before they got there, you know? Right. Right. And I, so this is, it's funny that this is segueing into a, this perfect question that has been on my mind all day, the last couple of days. And I plan to ask it on this episode, but this is literally segueing perfectly. So I follow a lot. I pay attention a lot um, in this world just because of what Chris has been through, what I'm learning, what I'm getting out of it personally. And um, I, so therefore I follow a lot on social media, right? I follow pages. I kind of look up and, and try to be a part of as much as I can to just pay attention. And one of the things that's been bothering me, um, and I know you guys feel strongly about the 12 steps is there is a, there's a group out there. Um, and, and I don't know where this comes from, or um, I would love if you guys could shed some light, but I've heard comments um, out there that the 12 steps is cult-like and that it feels like a cult and that like, how do we get people to go away from 12 steps? And from what I'm learning, and I'm trying to be very reasonable about this because I feel like I'm, you know, a great student of this life is, is why do people say that? And, and where does that come from? And I would love for you guys to respond to that because I think that goes along with what you were saying, Chad, is like willingness and, and kind of actually doing the work um, in, in you know, the way that you guys have found success. I realize there are ways to get better in multiple ways, but um, I'm seeing 12 steps as the strongest foundation. And then you hear comments like that. And it's like, wait a second, what's being taught else, elsewhere? You know, you know, that kind of gets into some <laughs> some controversial stuff. <laughs> Good. Um, there are a lot of people that simply just have never done them and then want to say the 12 steps don't work. It, with a lot of people, it's similar to me saying diet and exercise don't work. Right. Well, of course, diet and exercise work. If you lift weights and do cardio and eat right, you're going to get in shape. Right. Period. End of story. And the 12 steps work the same way. If you will do them, you will get spiritually fit. You'll get connected to power. To power. But there are some outliers in that. You know, there's people that have deep trauma that needs to be dealt with. There's other people that have, you know, some psychiatric needs that need to be met. Yep. And so 
I, I don't want to say that the 12 steps work for everybody because that's, sure. that hasn't proven to be true. Sure. But I would say most of the haters are, are people that never gave it. I don't want to say a real chance, yep. but never saw the process through. Right. You know, if somebody wants to be successful in this, like if I, if I want to get high, I'm going to hang out with people that do dope. And I'm going to surround myself with those people. If I really want to have an experience with this, I'm going to surround myself by people that know what they're talking about and have had this experience. And I'm going to stay in the middle of them and I am going to absorb everything that they say and do. Right. And I'm going to follow their lead. But what I see more often than not is people do a little bit of this and then it's like, okay, now it's time for me to go do my, what I want to do. Right. You know, I know you guys say the 12 steps is important, but I think it's more important that I marry the 17 year old girl, mm. or I think it's more important that I put my career first. Mm -hmm. If recovery moves from the number one priority in my life to the number two spot, anything takes that number one spot. It, it's the beginning of the end. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think the point is that, you know, the 12 steps does work for a lot of people. That's, that's the thing is, is, is I, I actually, it bothers me to see that because it's, you know, everybody, we need to, we need, we need to lift each other up through this. We're trying to break stigma and, and to see stuff like that. It bothered me. So I just was curious on your take on that. Um, and I do know it's controversial, um, but I do appreciate that. And Chris, anything to add there before we move on? Yeah. I think Chad broke that down absolutely perfectly about working out and dieting. And, you know, it's, I, I, it's difficult to hear people say that because it's kind of one of those things where I can be closed minded about things in life. And normally if I'm closed minded about something in life, it's, it's because I'm, um, don't have experience on it or don't have enough knowledge on it. And, my my question to anybody that would say it's a cult is why call it a cult and why talk down about it if mm -hmm. it's helped millions and millions and millions of people right right what's what's the purpose of doing that like mm -hmm. if it wasn't for you no worries it's fine Th this whole deal like there were 12 traditions laid out uh, from the beginning of this program that are solely based around not profiting not uh being a cult Mm -hmm. not it being about attraction rather than promotion, like not promoting this thing and, and uh, making sure that you attract people with it. And I think that was really important that they did that at the beginning, because if not, it could have turned into a cult. And, and I would be agreeing with, with what some of those people are saying, but I guess my biggest issue with anybody saying that is, is, what Chad said, one, are, have you actually gone through the process from start to finish? Like, ha, have you done everything that's been asked of you? And also like, did anyone ask you to, to buy into this thing and, and give anything but your willingness, honesty, and humility? Because I've, I've never experienced anyone asking me for money um, right. other than, you know, uh, contributions, like if I want to give them. And it's just, it's kind of interesting because, you know, um, I know some people that think it's a cult and, and I don't ever argue with anybody, but I, the, anyone that I've ever met that I've asked who have said it's a cult, I, I know for a fact they've never gone through all 12 steps and sponsored somebody and, and, and helped somebody at the end. And that's, that is what is asked of you. So for sure. um, that's a really good question. Well, yeah, what I separates us from a cult is not only are you free to leave anytime you want, we'll encourage you to leave. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. If somebody says, Hey, I don't think this is for me. Like there may be some people out there in, in this deal where they're like, Oh, well, you don't know what's right for you. But truthfully, like if people know their, their stuff and they know this program, like, I mean, if someone says they don't think they're a real alcoholic or a real drug addict, which we've covered in, in many episodes, then we say, all right, well, it sounds like, you know, I'm scared for you potentially, but it sounds like you might need some more experience and, you know, just keep in touch with me. <laughs> right. No, I, I appreciate you both. And, and I, that's, it's helpful too. Um, because again, I'm, I'm someone, I guess, you know, in a, in a very model position where I'm learning this and I have not gone through it and I'm trying to understand it. And, and from what I'm gathering, it's a great thing. And, and to your point, Chris, like it's everyone's, everyone's trying their best and everyone is, 
is having different experiences. And I think we, the worst thing we could do is, is knock any part of these, these recovery tactics. And, and, um, I, I can see the benefit of the 12 steps and, and Chad, I would love to go back to what you were talking about, um, regarding, you know, recovery, taking some time, right? I think what, is a, a difficult thing for a lot of the people listening to this podcast. A lot of people are loved ones, as we've talked about. Um, a lot of people um, have had their own battles um, with drugs or alcohol. But I think when we get to the point that we've been helping people, the, the thought of you know leaving your everyday life um, and potentially leaving your everyday life for a year, right? Like you mentioned, a year is, is really the, the time it takes because you have to go through this whole process and that's really when, when the healing um, takes form. But what kind of encouragement would you give to someone that might be listening right now that is um, either battling on their own or they are a loved one? And I think hearing for the first time that recovery takes time and, and taking that on as a weight or a burden of, I couldn't possibly leave my normal life or, um, you know, I, I don't know how, you know, life could stop for that long. Um, what that's, that's a, great I think, question. a natural thing for people to think right now. And I would love your take on encouragement or advice you would give to somebody. And I don't, you know, I don't want to lead people to believe that, that I need to take a year out of my life. Right, like right. what Chris was talking about, this process takes place quickly. Yeah. You know, 45, 60 days. Um, I'm, I'm going to have an experience of a spiritual nature that's going to start to change me. Right. Um, but I think it, it, it takes some time to make all of these amends and it takes it takes some time to, to sponsor some guys and get some guys through the work before this total change takes place. And so I'm back into my routine, um, but my routine may look a little different for a period of time. All right, here's the best way I, I think I can put it. This thing that we call a spiritual awakening, I think so many people confuse that with the American dream. Hmm. That what I'm really searching <laughs> for is the American dream, mm. you know, that I'm, I'm going to be rich and happy. And that's a spiritual life is not always comfortable. Right. You know, it's no. going to require me to do some things that are completely uncomfortable. But these worldly views are so ingrained in us. And so I think what takes some time is putting those worldly views aside, like it's okay if I don't make six figures this year, you know what? It's even okay if I go take a job at McDonald's for six months. Yeah. I'm not saying a guy that has a mortgage and two car payments and three kids in college should go work at McDonald's. We need to pay our bills. But for the kid in his you know, mid-20s that hasn't done much up to this point in his life, we just have to do some things differently. And that takes some time. I, a story came to mind when I... Uh, you know, so when I got out of treatment, I planned on moving in with my parents temporarily. Three and a half years later, when I relapsed, I was still with my parents, still in their house. And, uh, you know, I meet my current sponsor. We go through this work. And I, I had this impactful change when I really got engaged in this work. And, you know, maybe six months later, I moved out of my parents' house. And I got into an argument with my dad because he wouldn't let me take this 40 inch tube TV that became obsolete six months later. <laughs> and I was so upset and unhappy and throwing a temper tantrum about it. That would never occur today. I'd never respond to life like that. Um, but that's kind of the difference in how somebody shows up before this change takes place. Yeah. And this change just takes some time. And we have to be patient with it. So the encouragement back to your original question that I would give to somebody is how long have you invested into this downward trend that is your life? It's usually at least a number of years. Hmm. Let's get some perspective on this. What's six months of really doing stuff differently? 
And that doesn't mean you're in residential treatment for six months, but you need to be wherever you have the proper amount of accountability. And that's, that's different for different people. You know, there's people that go to treatment for 30 days and go back home and get knee deep in, in a fellowship and do really well. Yep. But there's other people that will fail miserably under those circumstances. They need to go to a sober living community and stay in a sober living community for a period of time. But we're not talking about forever. You know, again, let's get some perspective around this. What's, it's just a, a fraction of time to experience happiness and freedom for the rest of our lives. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, that's the hardest thing, I think, for people that haven't been through it or that are just new to it to really grasp because it does seem overwhelming um, from the outside. Uh, and, I, and I do think that that is really helpful for everyone to hear, right? Is it's investing in yourself. And you're right in the grand scheme of things, like what is six months? And you're right. How much time have you already invested um, in the downward spiral? I love, I love that you said that because when you put it in that perspective, I think a lot of people would go, oh, you know, you're right. <laughs> um, so I, I really appreciate that. Now, that, that and you know, Chris is, Chris is such a perfect example for this. And we've talked about this with him and other people noticed it. And when Chris came to work with us down in South Texas, he was still so immature. And then we I was touch and always stayed close. And then he came back from Ireland. He was a completely different person. Yeah. Yep. Like unrecognizable other than, but even physically, just, yes, he was a grown man yep. and drug addicts and alcoholics don't just grow up. Right. That doesn't, that doesn't happen. We don't learn from our mistakes without a program of action and some power in our lives. But Chris, how long did you say that that took you? Like what I know for me to, to really grow up, you know, it was probably a year or two. Yeah. Yeah. It was about a year or two. And, and I never really knew where to, cause I had a quick, like we were saying earlier, I had a very, very quick experience where I was put into a position of neutrality where I wasn't, if I was ever tempted to use drugs or drink, it was fleeting and it wasn't difficult. It was, it came naturally. And it was that power that I had received from getting through all the work. And I, and I saw the world in a new light. Uh, within 45 to 60 days of, of getting sober. But I think I, I found like two years, a year and a half to two years in, I, I really, I stopped being like the jokester all the time. Uh, like where I felt like I needed to be validated by people around me by making them laugh, you know, like I'm a goofy guy and I like to make people laugh, but I don't do it now because I want validation. I do it because I have a sense of humor, you know, and I think there's small things that occur throughout, throughout time. Once you're, once you're looking inward every night and every day and you're like, all right, where was I selfish? I, cause every night I, I have to look at like, did I hold the door open for that lady at the grocery store? You know, when, when, uh, my girlfriend said this to me, did I respond in a, in a loving way? Um, when I said I was going to go do something, did I show up and go do it? Or do I, did I make an excuse and, and bail out because I didn't want to. And I think through time, all those responsibilities and all those times where you look inward and, and get honest with yourself and you, and you bring prayer and meditation into it, I really think it it naturally forces you to grow up and, and become a man or a woman. And yeah, like that, that part, not like nightly inventory, like we've talked about where you, you know, you look inward and you look at where you were resentful and you look at where you were selfish and you look at where you were in fear and were you kind and loving and all these things that you're supposed to look at at the end of the night, it says this is this is where we you know grow in understanding and effectiveness and this is where i feel like this in meditation is where i feel like we start to kind of find out how our minds work and and uh start to grow up a lot so yeah i think a lot of practice and discipline is is necessary and that practice and discipline doesn't come within six months you know when i think the other piece of that chris is we're looking at our own stuff on a daily basis, but when you're 
when you're working with other men and watching them behave in a particular way, all of a sudden you start to put it together. Like, oh my gosh, I'm three years sober and I still behave like that at times. That's so true. These behaviors become so objectionable. And so, you know, again, back to the initial point I made is, is sometimes this, what we call a spiritual awakening where my spirit finally wakes up and I start to see life a little differently. A, a lot of guys will, will kind of stop at that point. Like, man, this is pretty darn good. And so they never really take on this responsibility of I'm going to take as many men through this work as I possibly can, because mm -hmm. I want other people to share in this experience. But through that process and meditation and, you know, reviewing our day, all of a sudden we just kind of grow up and, we really do have this profound change and that that's the coolest part of recovery is just running into somebody and being like, Oh my gosh, who are you? <laughs> yeah. I love that. I also can't imagine. Um, and again, apologize for my ignorance if this sounds silly, but I can't imagine in today's world being addicted to anything or struggling with substance abuse um, of any kind, just because we, we have, a world that is so needed now in instant gratification and um, a lot of like just squirrel moments here and there. And I just can't imagine if I had to kind of stop and focus myself on me, um, which is really hard to do right now. I can't imagine, um, you know, going through what you guys have been through, you know, today, and I'm not at all taking away from anyone that has, has been addicted to something, you know, 50 years ago, but it, it's a really tough world in general, but then to layer that on and, 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 you know, be able to dedicate that time to yourself, I think is it's important to recognize, um, when it's time for that. And I, I think that's hard. I, I assume it's hard, um, for people. I, I would agree with you, you know, and back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, you think about what the world has asked us to do to be successful in this economy is you really need to go to college for four years. Mm -hmm. Four years, you need to invest four years in college to learn something. But I won't invest six months in myself, in my spirit, mm -hmm. like in my happiness. Right. It's, it's very strange just how backwards that is. It is. Like we should all spend four years like researching our spiritual existence right. and then go spend six months learning a craft. Absolutely. Imagine if that's the way of the world, almost like if, listen, I'm not a parent, I'm not going to tell anyone how to parent, but like I think about sometimes if, if all parents taught their kids how to meditate from an early age and like look inward and look at that stuff. I don't know how easy it would be to actually do that, but think about how, how, many people could have eye-opening experiences from, from an early age, you know? Yeah. We've, we've talked about that many times before on, on, you know, past episodes is like, where does mindfulness come in and in, in just general education? Right. Cause I think that um, it's very easy to be out of touch with who you are and, and not in tune to your mindfulness and, and yourself these days um, that goes along with what I was saying before. And, um, and Chad, what you're mentioning, I completely agree. It's like, it, it, it should be part of what we do um, every day, uh, if not, you know, a dedicated amount of time. And it just doesn't happen that way. And so if we could find a way, um, you know, Chris and I, Chad, have, have joked at times on the podcast about, you know, just say no and, and those types of campaigns. And, and while the intention was great with those, how do we flip that into, you know, really dedicating time within schooling or education or whatever it is, parenting, to your point, Chris, like to, to really create education around mindfulness and awareness of, um, of self, right? It's kind of crazy to think about how, how simple, but yet complex people can make this thing. And I just think that, I don't know, I think that going back to the, the quote unquote haters or the people that think it's a cult, like, I would just suggest to anybody who's listening, if you're, if you're scared or like, if your mind tells you immediately, like, oh my gosh, like I can't just drop everything right now and, and change. And oh my gosh, like, you know, I'm, I'm hopeless because I have too much going on in life. Like it, it feels really good to finally just say, you know what, like I need, I, I give up for a second and I need somebody to lean on and, and 
I'm just going to try something different because what they're trying right now just isn't working, you know? And if you're listening and and if, and if you're struggling to like, just let go and and ease your grip on, on life for a second, like there's a lot of people that can show you how to get to a place of peace and internal peace in in a pretty quick fashion. And, and it works for a lot of people, you know, and, and, um, I don't know for anybody who has a family member out there that, that may be struggling, like there are a lot of resources and people that can, can help somebody if they're willing enough to, to get this thing. Well, and if you think about it logically, what most people are so afraid of losing anyway, they're on the road to lose. Yeah. Like, what do you have to lose? Like I want to hold on to this job. Well, I'm on a direct crash course to losing this job anyway if I can't do what I'm doing. Right. Like there, you really yeah. have nothing to lose. But yeah. that's I mean alcoholics and addicts in recovery are some of the luckiest people on the planet because we just we we were left with no other option. Right. It was yeah. like you are you are gonna take a look at why you do not love yourself. Hmm. You are gonna take a look at why life is so difficult for you. And those are the questions that at some point are presented that we had no idea we were walking into. It, we walk into this thing like, why can't I stop drinking and doing cocaine? And then you start, <laughs> when you start doing this thing, you're like, why am I so insecure? Why do I care so much what people think? Why am I so lonely? Hmm. You know, yeah. why, why don't I love who God made me to be? Hmm. And you start doing that work and it's powerful. Yeah. That's so great. Oh, I love hearing that stuff too. And I, and I love hearing it over and over. It's a great reminder too. And I know that people listening will appreciate that. And so in, in the interest of time, um, I don't want to go too long here and I I don't want to keep you guys too long, but Chad, thank you for joining us. And, and I would love if you could, um, as we kind of close out here, anything else that you'd like to say, um, parting words for the people listening, um, just about, you know, what, what, you know, I mean, you've, you've been in this, uh, for a while, you're, you're helping people every day, but anything else you want to leave the audience with before we go? Um, you know, we talked about how, how do we educate? How do we turn this around? I, I really think, you know, the addict is in active addiction is so twisted around the ego and often in such deep delusion it really starts sometimes with the families Hmm. like hey just drop your guard let let us share some truth with you like this is what this is going to look like if it continues on this is what it could look like like it's really hard when it's your loved one but families have to have to follow some guidance which is really tough to do I can speak from, from example, <laughs> for sure. It, it, especially if you are somebody that is uh, wired to be a fixer and a helper, please pick up the phone and call me if you have those thoughts, because it is, it is a helpless feeling to not be able to help. <laughs> yeah. Chad, would you care to share the, the name of the place that you are the executive director oh, at? And, and- oh, yeah. I'm at a facility called Impact Recovery Center. Great. Birmingham, Alabama. Amazing. Yeah, I think I honestly, um, and this this is not, you know, brown nosing and you're one of my closest friends and I don't need to make you feel better about yourself, but I I have about three places, including where you're at, that I would send people to treatment and I feel more comfortable sending somebody that I know or don't know to a facility that you're running than anywhere else in the country. Hmm. Um, and that's, that. and that's, yeah, it's the truth. And, and it's the truth because I know anywhere you are, you're not going to allow egos to take over. And, and people that go in there are actually going into a place where like they have the best chance of getting better based on the focus that, is going to be put towards them by the person and people that run the place. And I don't know, that speaks volumes about who you are. And I think it's pretty cool. So I, I well, think it'd be good for us to, yeah, you're welcome. And 
I mean, listen, Chad saw you when you were a sweating kid in the bathroom. So like you guys have, you guys have come a long way. That was like, it's amazing. Oh my God. Well, yeah. Yeah. So, Chris, Chris exactly. my, my most favorite people in the world to play golf with. Yay. He's my I great, not agree my, great en- my great encourager. Yay. <laughs> Chad has his best rounds when we play together. Well, <laughs> and even, even if I hit the ball in the water, he's like, Chad, that was a really good swing. <laughs> so, so close to being perfect. Yeah. Remember when we were talking back about how much he's grown up? That's, that's for sure. Because he encourages me as well as his older yeah. sister when I have a terrible attitude on the golf course. So, <laughs> um, yeah. no, that's awesome. And, and Chad, listen, thank you again so much for joining us um, and hope you can come back. And we are thinking about you from Raleigh and from Texas all the way to Alabama, pumped for your new gig and hope that um, all the great things are continuing to head your way. It's, uh, it's been awesome to talk to you. Well, thanks so much, y'all. That was fun. Yeah, for sure. And um, until next time, uh, really appreciate it. And we'll talk soon. All right. Bye-bye. Sounds good. All right. Bye. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Chris. Bye.